Please turn to the book of Galatians, chapter 1. And I'll be preaching today from verses 6 through 10. I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another gospel. Really is what he's saying. Only thou are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even though we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to that which you received, let him be anathema, let him be accursed. For I am now seeking, for am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still striving, striving to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. One of the danger signals that comes to a society to warn that society of moral sickness is its evaluation of truth. For when a society lowers its standard, lowers its premium on truth, that society is sick unto death. For when someone lowers his premium on truth, compromises truth, counterfeits truth, he destroys the very foundations on which a society rests. And you cannot have a society without honesty and truth-telling. And you cannot have foundations. Foundations crumble when people begin to compromise and to counterfeit the truth for expediency, for acceptance, for approval. And there is one truth that you cannot compromise and you cannot counterfeit without destroying basic foundations. And that is the truth of the gospel. No wonder the Apostle Paul is furious toward the Galatians, for they are compromising the truth of the gospel. Somebody said that the book of Galatians is like hot lava erupting from a volcano. He was furious. As a matter of fact, in the third chapter, he calls his church members stupid idiots. I don't think I'll try that, but I haven't gotten that angry. But he was, he was furious. And the reason why he was so angry was because they had lowered the premium of the truth of the gospel. And it seems almost unchristian, verses 8 through 9, when he said, if, if, if we or any messenger from heaven preach any other gospel, let him be cursed by God. And he's talking about something that is so abhorrent that God would be glorified in its utter destruction. If anybody preaches any other gospel, let God be glorified in his utter destruction. <laughs> Pretty powerful statement. And what Paul is doing is this. He's saying that, that it is the message that validates the messenger rather than the messenger that validates the message. That's good news in light of recent developments. You pick up your newspaper and there it is again, the headlines of some other minister guilty of, quote, impropriety in his personal life, end quote. 
Just happened last Sunday when I got home from church, picked up the newspaper and found that a Southern Baptist minister, pastor of the largest, one of the largest Southern Baptist churches, guilty of some impropriety, quote, unquote, in his personal life. And I know that the demonic world, the demons of this cosmic world must have laughed in glee. And I know that, I know that all over the Southwest there were a bunch of skeptics and, and, and critics picked up the newspaper and said, aha, I knew all along there's nothing to that stuff those preachers preach. But it's not the messenger, messenger that validates the message. I'll tell you, the, the messenger can fail, the message won't. The messenger can slip and he can fall, but the message will never slip and will never fall. And that's the importance that Paul sees in the truth of this message. And what he's saying is that the truth of the gospel must supersede everything else in importance. In fact, he's saying that there is only one true gospel, really. Only one true gospel. And then he gives us the credentials of the true gospel. Now, Southern Baptists are notorious for not knowing what they believe. You ask Southern Baptists, say, what do you believe? Well, I believe what my church believes. Well, what do your church believe? Well, it believes what I believe. I mean, we just kind of go around in circles. We, we, we're notorious for not knowing what we believe. So if some uh, guy came to your door today or somebody asked you, what, do you, you know, what, is the, what is the validation, what are the credentials of the gospel that we know that it's true? I bet you know, some of us, most of us, couldn't give an answer. So I'm going to give you the, what I believe are the credentials from this text of the true gospel. I want you to write these down. The Apostle Paul said, this gospel we preach is the true gospel because it is divine in its source. Where did this gospel come from? If somebody comes to your door tomorrow and he knocks on the door and he says, I've come with a gospel. You ask him where that gospel came from because the gospel is only strong, is strong as its source. The Apostle Paul said the source of the gospel is divine. That means two things. He meant that it was divine in its origin. He said in verse 11, he said, I didn't confer with men. I didn't get this message from men. This is not an invention of man's mind. I got this word from God. It came by revelation of Jesus Christ. Um, the other day I was reading a theological piece and this guy said in this theological piece, he said that the modern Christian, the Christian come of age, the modern theologian lives in a day of existential experience. Now that's a fancy term. What he meant was this, that the, that the modern Christian, the, day, the, the modern theologian gets his theology from the gut feeling. As he, you know, in a crude way, that's what he was saying. He, he gets his theology from a gut feeling. Kind of like Tom Landry chooses his quarterback, you know. That's true. You know, you remember when he put in Holga Boom for Danny White a couple of years ago? Somebody asked him why. He said, well, I just had a feeling. It was just the feeling. And now every time he makes a major decision, somebody, you know, kind of digs him a little bit and says, well, why would you do that? Did you have the feeling? He gets that goofy little smile. He says, yeah, I had the feeling. Well, that may be a good way to choose a quarterback, but it's not a good way to choose your theology. He said, we didn't get this 
from gut feeling. You know, some people say, well, you know, it just doesn't feel right to me. It just doesn't seem right to me. Somebody said to me one time, I just can't believe in the virgin birth because that just doesn't seem possible. It just doesn't seem right. Oh, how we desperately need an objective faith in the Word. We get this by revelation, he said. It's the unfolding of the Musturion. It's divine in its origin. And it's divine in its operation. And he said, you were called, he said, you were called by the grace of Jesus Christ. In verse 15, he said, I was separated from my mother's womb. He's not talking about physical birth. What he's talking about, what he's saying is this, that long before you ever were, God called you and has chosen you and you're saved because God has chosen you and called you. You see, becoming a Christian is not a matter of one day there arose in you a need for God. The Christian faith, the true gospel has this message that long before you or your mother were born or your mother's mother was born or the church was born or the world was born, God was calling you and choosing you. For Christianity is not man's upreach for God, it's God's downreach for man. Christianity is not, does not have its does not stem out of your need for God, it stems out of God's love for you. Christianity is not man searching for God, it's God's quest for man. Spurgeon was right when he said, God must have called me because I never would have called him. It's true that God must have chosen me, he said, because I would have never chosen him. I was reading Romans 3 the other day and it says, no man seeketh after God. And I thought, well, surely people seek for God. I've seen people seeking after God. What he means was this, leave man alone and he will never seek for God. He'll hide from him. And Adam is exhibit A of that. So that when you walk down the aisle of a church, it's not that you're coming seeking God. It's not that you're reaching out after God. It's God's search for you, God reaching down for you and you responding to him. That's the message of the true gospel. It's, it means that your salvation is entirely dependent upon God from first to last, from its origination to its consummation, that we are saved because God's downreach for man. It has a divine source. He said this gospel is true in the second place because it, of its subject. Now what's the real thing? We have these theological cafeterias, you know, any day of the week, you can go to the theological cafeteria, pick out any theology you want from one end of the spectrum to the other. You can turn on a television, you can pick up an, a periodical, you can come downtown to the street corner, every street corner in town, and there's this theological cafeteria, and you can take your choice. I mean, what's the real thing? You ever wondered about that? I mean, we have 15 thousand times, 15,000 denominations and religions in the world. What's the real thing? Apostle Paul said, this gospel I preach is the real thing. The, the, the way to know that is simple because the subject of this gospel is Jesus Christ. He's the subject. They don't just, this gospel doesn't just allude to him or refer to him or, 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 or speak of him. He's the subject of this gospel. 
Dorothy Sayers was right when she said, speaking of the birth and the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, from, this, from the beginning of time till now, the only thing that has ever really happened is that. I love that. The only thing that has ever really happened in, from beginning of time until now is Jesus Christ, born a virgin, lived a sinless life, crucified on a cross, raised from the dead. That's the only thing that's ever really happened. A number of years ago, Grosset Dunlap designated a hundred um, educators, administrators, writers, authors, poets, etc., to come up with what they believed were the 30 most important events of history. Number one, Christopher... was. Tied for fourth. I tell you, the only thing that's ever really happened is Jesus Christ, born, lived, died, rose again, ascended to glory. The subject of this book is Jesus. Not just the Old Testament, but the New Testament. Not just the New Testament, but the Old Testament. The Old Testament says somebody's coming. The Gospels say somebody has come. The epistles and the revelation say somebody's coming again, and that somebody is Jesus. He's the hero of this book. And if you've read this book and you've not discovered Jesus in every chapter, you need to read it again because you missed the point. Jesus said, speaking of Old Testament Scripture, search the Scripture, for they testify of me. He told Nicodemus, he said, I'm, a, I'm amazed that you're a teacher of the law and you studied the law and taught it and didn't find me there. And he said to the Jews who accused him, you don't believe in Moses, for if you believed in Moses, you'd believe in me, for Moses spoke about me. What did Moses talk about? He talked about the law. It's in the Old Testament. Jesus is there. Alexander Wythe used to, the great British preacher used to talk about the evening, Saturday afternoon walks he'd have with Marcus Dodd. And he'd say, sometimes our, con our conversation just begin anywhere. But he said, it wouldn't be long until we'd head across the country to Jesus of Nazareth, born, crucified, and indwelling. And it doesn't take you long to open this book to find the birth of man. And then the book heads across the country to Jesus. He's on the front page of it. For there is man sinning against God and God cursing the serpent. And Jesus is there. For, the, for God said, I'll put enmity between your seed and her seed, the seed of the woman. He's talking about Jesus. For the wounds of Jesus will inflict a mortal wound upon Satan and his seed. And when man sinned, he had coverings of leaves to cover him and to hide behind. And God provided skins to cover him with. An animal was slain, a life was taken, and those skins were used to cover man's nakedness. It was a picture of Jesus. For the Bible talks about the fact that His life was given to cover us for our sins called propitiation. That means covering. And when Moses led his people out in the wilderness, manna came down to feed them. Jesus said, I am that manna that came down from God. Manna was round to, 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 to symbolize His perfection. It was white to symbolize His purity. It was miraculous to symbolize His deity. It lay upon the ground to symbolize His humility. It was raised up to symbolize His resurrection. And it was oily to symbolize the anointing of the Holy Spirit upon His life. Jesus was that bread. A foreshadowing of that bread of, of life was the manna. And when Moses struck the rock in the wilderness and water came forth, it was a foreshadowing of Jesus, the water, the living water. 
And when he raised up that brazen serpent in the wilderness for man's wickedness, he was foreshadowing the raising up of Jesus. For he said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Whosoever believeth him shall not be, shall not be damned. I mean, in type, in prophecy, in picture, in illustration, and analogy, Jesus is the subject of this book. This is a book about him. It's not a book about Joseph Smith or Brigham Young or Mary Baker Eddy or Amy MacPherson. It's a book about Jesus. A guy came to my door the other day and not long ago and he said, I've come tell you the plain truth. I said, the plain truth. I said, where's your Bible? He said, well, we, we believe in the Bible. He said, but this is our publication. Watchtower said, this is our publication, the plain truth. I said, well, that may be a good book, but it's not the gospel. For the plain truth is what the disciples preached across the world, that kerygma, that Jesus Christ was born a virgin, that he lived in sinlessness, that he was crucified vicariously, he was raised triumphantly, he was ascended exaltedly. That is the plain truth. And if that is the true gospel, then that means that the only way a person is saved is by encounter with the person of Jesus Christ. If he's the subject of this book, then a man is saved by encountering him. Now some people have met the church, and some have met the priest, and some have met the catechisms, and some have met baptism, and some have met good works, some have met the requirements the church sets forth, but unless a person has met in Jesus, met in faith Jesus Christ, it's less than enough. For the subject of this gospel is Jesus Christ. Now in the New Testament age, the pagans had what we might call a what-not shelf. We'd call it a what-God. I, mean, I guess it's a what-God shelf. Because they had a shelf in their house and on that shelf was a God for everything. They had a God for the rain, and they had a God for the, wind, for the sun, and a God for the soil. They had a God for everything. And when Paul came through the country preaching Jesus Christ, they thought, we got us another God. And so they began to rearrange the shelf so that they'd have room to put God, put Jesus on that shelf. You don't rearrange the gods on the shelf so you can put Jesus there. Well, he's not just another God. He is the God. Very God of very God, very man of very man. Salvation takes place when man sweeps the shelf of every God and Jesus Christ is encountered as Lord. That's the true gospel. Subject of this gospel is Jesus Christ, finally. He said this is the true gospel because of its substance, because of its source, because of its subject, because of its, because of its substance. Now, what is the substance of this gospel? Well, he, give, he gives us the answer. The substance of the gospel is the grace of the Lord Jesus. Now, what, is that, what does that word grace mean? Let me give you a Knox County definition of grace. It's everything has been taken care of. That's, that's the definition. I saw you writing that down, both of you. It means everything has been taken care of. Let me give you an illustration. If this motivates any of you to, to, do, do, to do something, well, so be it. We went out to eat not long ago, and we were at the restaurant, and we saw some 
friends there, somebody, some people from this church were there eating. We came in and we greeted them and we, we, we visited with them a little bit while, while, they, while we were on our way to our table and they were eating. And so we went on over to our table, sat down and started to eat. And we noticed that our friends, after a little while, they were ahead of us quite a, quite a time. They had been there quite a while. So they, they finished their dinner and they got up and left. We went ahead eating at our table and we got ready to leave and I asked for the check. Then came the most wonderful words you could ever hear. It's already been taken care of. Now, if that motivates any of you to, you know, to follow that, say, that'll be fine. Now, everything's been taken care of. Now, the substance of this gospel is this, that everything necessary has been taken care of. And that, doesn't, and that means that you don't have to make a contribution to it at all. I love it. Jesus paid it all. God in Jesus Christ, who is the subject of this book, has done everything necessary for your redemption and mine, and there's nothing left for you to contribute to it. Now that's what Paul was so upset about. Because these guys had come, these Judaizers had infiltrated his congregation, and they were saying, now it's necessary to have Jesus, but that's not enough. It's not just grace alone, it's grace plus law. It's not just faith alone, it's faith plus works. There's some things you've got to contribute to this, this business. There's some things you've got to contribute. And that's what they were teaching. And that's what Paul means in, that very, in the second verse there, in verse uh, uh, 7, when he says that they have distorted the gospel. Now that word distort means to change its character. It means to change its direction. See, there are just two directions. There is this direction, that is, that salvation is by grace through faith and that alone, that God has done everything necessary, everything's taken care of, or that you have to make some contribution to it. And that's, that's the only choices you have, see. And the Apostle Paul said these guys have come and they've changed the character of the gospel. And it's not even another gospel, he said. It's a heresy. Uh, in, in this election year, we've learned a new term. And we, we've, 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 we've identified some new people. It's a, it's a phenomenon, really. And the new term we've learned and the new people we have identified are called spin doctors. Have you heard that term? Shake your head. This is yes. And this is no. Okay. Have, have you heard the term spin doctors? Okay, these spin doctors are these guys that, that after the debate, you know, and after the political speech, these guys move among the crowds. They're called spin doctors. And what they do is they spin off what, what the, the politicians, the candidates have said, and they spin off of that, and they tell us what they, what they said and what they didn't say, what they meant to say, what they didn't mean to say. And, and you know, they just do a surgery on their, on their speeches, and they're called spin doctors. And they just spin off all of these teachings that, that, that this guy was meant to say or didn't say or whatever. Now, the Judaizers, watch this, were the original spin doctors. And they followed the Apostle Paul in and they took what he said and what he didn't say and they spun off of that, this theology that is absolutely contrary to the character and nature of everything he said. They began to say what Paul was teaching is this. 
that salvation is by grace plus your contribution. And that just blew his mind. And after all, it didn't really matter, really, does it? I mean, everything's, you know, I mean, after all, it's kind of, it's not cool to be narrow-minded, is it? Somebody said one time, he said, it doesn't really matter about the virgin birth. It does matter. Because if he wasn't born a virgin, he inherited the old sin nature of Adam. Somebody might say, it doesn't really matter if he lived sinlessly or not. It does matter. If he didn't live sinlessly, then he died for his sin, not mine. Somebody might say, some theologian might say, it doesn't matter whether Jesus was raised from the dead or not bodily. It does matter. For nobody, no, no dead man can ever do any good for anybody else. That's why while Jesus was in the tomb three days, nobody ever was called on to believe on him. You ever notice that? When Jesus was in the, in the tomb for three days, nobody was ever encouraged to call upon Jesus to be saved. Because when you're dead, you can't help anybody. Now these Judaizers were coming in there and they'll say, this is just a variation of what Paul said. Variation my, my eye. That'd be like saying the choir, this great choir is going to sing a variation of the Hallelujah Chorus and they get up and sing Yankee Doodle Dandy. I mean, it's absolutely contrary to it. Now, now the, the, here's the alternative. Here's the, here's the choice. It's, the, it's a gospel by grace where God has done everything that's necessary and you're saved by faith in that finished work. Or it's a distortion. Listen, I'm through. Somebody tells about that, one, that, that, that when Spurgeon was young and in search of truth, he went into this little chapel to hear a man preach. And it was obvious after a while that the circuit rider preacher wasn't going to show up. So he got up to leave. But just as he got up to leave, some old layman, realizing the circuit rider preacher wasn't going to be there, he got up and got his Bible and opened it up to that passage in Isaiah, Look unto me, all ye ends of the earth, and be saved. And all of a sudden it hit Spurgeon. That the gospel of grace is this. It is acknowledging what already is. It is the acknowledgement of what already is. Now when Paul came to Galatia, he preached a gospel that had its source in God, its subject in Jesus Christ, and its substance was this, you believe in what already is. In a moment, I'm going to ask you to get up out of your seat and come to Jesus Christ. The message of the gospel is Jesus Christ, alive, lived, died, rose, ascended. I'm going to ask you to meet Jesus Christ this morning, to encounter Him in faith for salvation, to come out of your place, out of the balcony, out of this floor below, out of the choir, to come if you've never encountered the living Lord, to trust Him and be saved. You may want to come and join the church. You may want to come and rededicate your life to Jesus Christ. But I make my plea this morning primarily to those of us who have never placed our faith, who have never met the person of Jesus Christ who is the subject of this book. 
and who is found on every page. He's the most important character you'll ever know. For since the beginning of time until now, He's the only thing that's ever really happened. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You that You have revealed Yourself in Jesus Christ, manifested in flesh, vindicated in spirit, seen of angels, preached among the nations, believed on in the world, received up in glory. And we thank you that the simplicity of the gospel is that man by grace through faith comes to encounter new birth, new life in Jesus Christ, in Him alone. And I pray this morning for that person watching on television, that congregation that sits before me today, and that if there are those here who are lost without Christ, who have never met Him, never encountered Him in faith, Today, they'll come to simply trust Him, to get to know Him in faith and be saved. I pray that there will be those who will come and join our church, and those who will come to say, we want to live a deeper life, closer walk. We've sinned against God. We've been away. We want to come home. This is my prayer in Jesus' name. Now look here. In the service this morning, a young boy came. He'd been on a retreat with the youth. The, the middle school came publicly professing his faith in Christ. Some more of these uh, teenagers may be here this morning who made that decision over the weekend. You'll want to come publicly as your friend came earlier. And there may be some this morning of us adults who have made that decision. But we've never followed the Lord in baptism. We've never publicly declared our faith in Christ. Time's to do that. Time to do that is now. Come this morning to join our church. If you're a Christian, a Baptist, you want to come and place your life here. While we stand to sing and our choir leads our singing, we invite you to come. Come right now.